clearly had a knack for searching and for investigating. I think because Lissa is someone who has lived on both sides of the law. You know, she's someone who's been investigated and she's someone who has investigated. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue, sitting in for Fred Burton. The book is a tale of a woman caught between the past and the present, between tradition and change, wealth, poverty, death, and redemption. It is the story of Lissa Yellowbird, a Native American who took on her tribe, the courts, and her family to uncover the truth and find justice. The title is Yellowbird, Oil, Murder, and a Woman's Search for Justice in Indian Country. The author is Sierra Crane Murdoch. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast. Thanks for having me. That was somewhat of an oblique introduction, but I wondered if you could give me a very short introduction to your book for our listeners. Yeah, no, that was a beautiful summary of the themes, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, Yellowbird is it's a work of nonfiction. Um, it's been classified as a true crime, but I have to admit I'm sometimes resistant to that classification because it really is um, a mishmash of a lot of different things. Um, so the story is about a Native American woman and a Rickrow woman named Lissa Yellowbird who um, got out of prison in 2009 and came home. Um, and she uh, came home to the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, which was in the midst of a massive oil boom in Western North Dakota. And um, she, as sort of a way to stay sober, to distract herself, um, became curious about the disappearance of a young white oil worker from the reservation, a man named Casey Clark. Um, and she began to investigate what had happened to him, and it became an obsession for her. Um, and so the book is about her search for this young man, Casey Clark, but at the same time, it's also, you know, seeing the transformation of the reservation, um, during the oil boom through Lissa's eyes, um, and also kind of digging back into the layers of history and her family to really understand how the oil boom has created this transformative moment for the tribe. The pervasive sense of the book is how how vast the complications are to every step that the protagonist takes. How did you find out about this case? I'd actually been reporting on the reservation um, and on the oil boom, the way the oil boom was impacting the Mandan Hidatsa Rikra Nation for about three years before I met Lissa. Um, so I was familiar with the story and with the place and with a lot of the people I'd met there. Um, and one of the stories that I had written before I met Lissa was about jurisdiction on the reservation. Um, there is a Supreme Court decision from the 1970s that basically prevents, um, tribes from having any sort of criminal jurisdiction, um, over non-native people who come to the reservation or who live on the reservation. So, um, and this was becoming a really big issue for the tribe during the oil boom because, you know, the tribe's population had more than, uh, doubled, possibly tripled or quadrupled with people who were not enrolled members of that tribe and who, um, over whom the tribe had no criminal jurisdiction. Um, and so this had created 
these sort of jurisdictional cracks um, where some people on the reservation who are non-native felt that they could, um, you know, act with impunity and get away with certain things. Obviously not everyone. A lot of people were just there to work. Um, this was the tail end of the Great Recession. Um, and so, uh, you know, this this person Lissa was looking for, Casey Clark was someone who had kind of slipped into those jurisdictional cracks. He was non-native. He disappeared on the reservation. And it was becoming very clear to Lissa in the beginning that um, the person responsible for this guy's death was non-native as well. Um, and so I had gone to the reservation to write about these jurisdictional issues and actually <clears throat> how they were impacting members of the tribe. Um, there was a really big increase in sexual assault of um, Native American women on the reservation. Uh, and it was becoming clear that a lot of the perpetrators were non-Native, um, and that was becoming really difficult to prosecute and to gather evidence on. So, yeah, all these factors that kind of led me to want to write about crime and, and why crime was increasing on the reservation during the oil boom. And that led me to Lissa. Um, when I went to investigate this crime, the disappearance of Christopher Clark, I met Lissa because she had been searching for him at that point for several years. And so Lissa Yellowbird, she seems to be a very, very good investigator, but she is a complicated human, as are we all, but she's particularly open about her complications. Why did she give you so much access to this case? Um, I write in the book that I'm not sure why Lissa trusted me, and I don't think she knows either. <laughs> um, so when I first met Lissa, she invited me to Fargo. Um, and she said, you know, oh, you're interested in this case. You're interested in this disappearance. I involved myself really deeply in this case. And if you want, you can come see all the files I have, which were, you know, thousands of pounds thousands of pages of text messages and emails that she'd exchanged with the people she believed were involved in this crime. And I said, yeah, sure. Okay. So I went to Fargo where she was living and, and I spent weeks sifting through her files and she was working as a welder at the time. And so she would just come home and at the end of the day, and we'd just sit and talk about different things that I'd found on her hard drive. And she would let me download her hard drive. And at that point, it really wasn't clear why she wanted me to do this or allowed me to do this. I think, I think she was interested in the fact that someone was interested in really understanding this story in a deep way. And I think she know, knew that she had really intimate access to this story in a way that no one else did. And she was interested in sharing that, but why she shared it with me, like that didn't necessarily make sense in the beginning, but I kept coming back because I was not just fascinated in this disappearance and figuring out what had happened and why it happened, but I was interested in Lissa herself um, as a person and as a really complicated person, a person who had recently been to prison, um, a person who was, you know, had intimate knowledge of this reservation um, and whose family history was very much reflective of the history of the reservation. I understood that there was an intimate link between the way that she had lived her life and the kind of impacts that the boom was having now on other people's lives. You know, she'd been addicted to drugs and one of the biggest um, 
results of the boom, one of the biggest consequences of the boom was an incredible rise in, in drug addiction on the reservation. Quite a time period. I mean, it, it coincided, of course, with the rise of the, you know, meth and the opiate boom and everything else. And being a person who is trying to protect their sobriety in that atmosphere, I imagine that investigating this disappearance also sort of became a daily routine to keep her out of trouble as well as solve a crime. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, And that's something that her uh, daughter says at one point, which I quote in the book, she says, you know, um, her family was getting a little upset with how obsessed she was becoming with finding Casey Clark, um, the victim in this story, but also other missing people as well. And she says, I feel like you've just traded one addiction for another. And (laughs) that's more of a negative way of putting it. I think for Lissa, you're right, it was for her an obsession that could take the place of other less healthy obsessions she had had in her past. Um, But she's also someone who's just like incredibly smart and good at what she does. Um, And she clearly had a knack for for searching um, and for investigating. I think because Lissa is someone who has lived on both sides of the law, you know, she's someone who's been investigated and she's someone who has investigated. She she had a degree in criminal justice um, and she had uh, worked as a prison guard. She'd, you know, been on contract with police departments doing various work over the years. Um, so she she had an understanding of the law from, from both sides. And um, she talks about that sometimes, about how she feels like her criminality sort of prepared her in a sense, for doing for doing good. We'll get back to our conversation with Sierra Crane Murdoch in just a moment, but I wanted to speak to you first about why Stratfor's content is such an extraordinary value in these extraordinary times. The real-time challenges of living in an increasingly interconnected world have rarely been more on display as they have in 2020. The coronavirus pandemic, economic slowdown, and social unrest has affected every single aspect of government, business, life, and technology. How we manage the associated risks has direct implications for the broader public interest. Right now, businesses and individuals are turning to Stratfor and RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Together, Stratfor and Rain help you understand the why behind what's happening now. Because what happens next? Well, that's up to you. Find out how Stratfor and Rain can help you at rainnetwork.com. Thanks. The atmosphere in which her investigations take place, a sense of lawlessness, right? I mean, where people can behave with impunity on the reservation. Did Lissa Yellowbird cooperate at all with local law enforcement as she investigated this case and it moved forward? Yeah. Um, and I should just clarify, it's not that they necessarily can act with impunity, but it's that there's a sense that there is like enough of a void, um, a vacancy of law enforcement that they can effectively get away with crimes that they wouldn't necessarily get away with elsewhere. Um, and that's something that like tribal law enforcement would hear over and over from non-native people that they would either pull over or try to detain. They'd say, Oh, you can't do anything to me. Um, so it was, it was well understood on the reservation that 
this was a place where you could get away with quite a lot. But yeah, back to your question about um, did Lissa work with law enforcement? She does um, frequently. A lot of what Lissa does is she tries to get law enforcement to pay attention to these cases in a way Mm -hmm. that she feels like they aren't already. So, you know, in in Casey Clark's case, the case I write about in this book, um, there were already investigators working on this case, but Lissa felt they weren't doing a good enough job. And so she was trying to recruit other investigators to the case. And she actually did end up recruiting a uh, investigator from the Department of Homeland Security who became the investigator who followed this case all the way through to the very end. Um, and uh, she was feeding him information as she could and, and just trying to connect him with um, with folks who could tell him more about the crime or the people that Lissa believed were responsible. She was helping, trying to get him to gather better evidence. and and But at the same time, she was that she was, you know, trying to get law enforcement to take this disappearance on, you know, there were a number of limitations. Like, it's not a crime to go missing. You can't, you can't investigate, you know, a missing person's case as you would a case where you might already have a body or you might already have some evidence that a murder has occurred. Um, so that is a limitation often. That's not to say that law enforcement can do more to investigate these cases. Very often the cases that slip through these jurisdictional cracks are the ones that they ignore or the ones that they just decide are a low priority. If I were Lisa Yellowbird and, and there were more cases like the case that you describe in your book and they just fall into low priority, I, w- I would want to heat things up, you know, and make that my career. <laughs> Sol- <laughs> solve these cases. Yeah, there isn't very good data on this, but we know that at least... 5,700 Native American women are, are missing in the United States. Um, yeah. Their cases are still unsolved. So yeah, it's it's a big issue. And that's what, you know, what you said is exactly what Lissa does. She heats things up, you know, and, and in this case, in the case of Casey Clark, you know, who's not Indigenous, but who did kind of slip through this jurisdictional crack, he, Lissa heated things up in like really non-traditional ways by putting intense pressure on um, the people she believed were involved in his disappearance. Um, you know, she like had this flyer campaign, um, where she anonymously mailed like tens of thousands of flyers all around the Bakken region, um, encouraging oil companies to drop their contracts with, um, this guy and his wife who were running the trucking company from which Casey disappeared. Um, but she also was like, creating aliases and she was posting videos online undermining these people um and and it was through that through these like really non-traditional means that the case actually broke open in in a very unexpected way the cooperation with local law enforcement the jurisdictional cracks that you mentioned um how did local people on the reservation respond to lissa and you telling her story yeah. Um, I mean, Lissa is a member of that tribe. She's from that community. Um, so on the reservation itself, she hasn't gotten a lot of, you know, overt pushback. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there were people on the reservation who were not happy with the kinds of things she was revealing through her work, but she didn't really, she didn't really hear that. You know, it's, it's a close community. 
she was related to some of the people that, you know, she was investigating. Um, in terms of law enforcement, you know, Lissa is a complicated figure in the eyes of law enforcement and prosecution. In some respects, I, you know, I've, I've met law enforcement or prosecutors who appreciate her and the work she does, who feel like she fills this space that they can't because she gets people to talk to them in ways that they can't. Um, at the same time, I think there's a lot of frustration with her sometimes um, because she is so dogged and she will do anything to get the answers. Yeah, tactics yeah. rather than strategy, right? Um, I would say she's strategic as well, just in a way that maybe they're not. <laughs> uh, they're not completely on board with but she also really, you know, she puts a lot of pressure on law enforcement and she calls them out when she feels like they're not doing their work in a way that she thinks they should be. So, yeah, it, it, it's just complicated. And I, I've ha I've interviewed officers, you know, who've said things about her like, oh, this is a holster sniffer, which is like a really interesting insult. You know, like she she wants to be a cop, but she's not a cop. But, you know, Lissa doesn't want to be a cop. She wants to get the cops to do their jobs. Um, and she does that in antagonistic ways sometimes that really makes them mad. She's doing this work in a way that they never will be able to um, because, you know, <laughs> they they couldn't within the confines of their job work in the way that Lissa works, um, right, right? And that's part of what makes her so so interesting, and also part of what makes her so effective. Um, uh, that's what I was going to say. She's so effective, and uh, yeah, you know, this is a very difficult book to do an interview about because it has a beginning and a middle and an end, and I don't want to preview the end, but um, mm -hmm. this is a story of how one case got attention. And you mentioned that there are similar unsolved cases. Do you have any plan to tell any of those stories? Or is this just the, the happenstance of a really phenomenal character in an interesting situation? Yeah, I mean, it was really, um, I think, one of the most amazing parts of following Lissa for this many years was that I got to see her her evolution as a person, really. Um, you know, she started searching for Casey Clark. That was really the first big case she worked. And then all these Native American families from all over the country began calling her and asking for her help in searching for their loved ones once they heard that this was something that she did. And so, you know, I started joining Lissa on these other searches, um, mainly for missing and murdered Indigenous women, which is, you know, has become a movement now. It's been a movement mm -hmm. in Canada for a long time, but just in the last few years has gained attention in the United States. So, yeah, I have been able to see Lissa kind of transition into, you know, having her search for missing people be something she does on the side to now it being really her whole life. And that's been really cool to watch. And it also, you know, has made her now connected with this national issue in a really, really interesting and important way. One of the really sad things that came of that was that, you know, after I had been spending years with Lissa and after she'd been already searching for other missing people, she learned that her own niece had gone missing 
and she went looking for her own niece. And um, I just did a story about that case for This American Life. That, that for Lissa was the hardest case she's ever worked on, both because it, well, mainly because it was just so personal. I don't know if I will, I mean, I'm, there's been a lot of great journalism about missing and murdered Indigenous women and, and men and children as well. Um, and I think there can obviously be more. So, you know, if there if there's a place for me to to fill that space, um, if it makes sense for me at any point, maybe I, I will do more. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know in terms of following this on more cases. I mean, we, we talk constantly, we're in constant touch, but uh, I don't know, I could fill 20 books about her life, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at yeah. some point I think our, for now our relationship has moved more into just being in um in post storytelling mode. <laughs> yes. So um, in post storytelling mode, do you have another book on the horizon? Um, I have an idea and I haven't totally developed it yet. You know, I anticipated spending a lot of this year promoting the book I just wrote and uh, have, you know, I canceled the book tour and um, have been doing a lot of events from home. So, but yeah, I, I'm now beginning to think about what I want to do next. Um, and I've haven't entirely uh, come to a conclusion yet. Well, the book we spoke about today is Yellow Bird, Oil, Murder, and a Woman's Search for Justice in Indian Country. The author is Sierra Crane Murdoch. And if you haven't listened to the other case on This American Life, you should. It's a really good listen. Sierra, thank you so much for being on the Pen and Sword podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. There is a lot of content you can read about oil booms and tensions between the federal government and local agencies at Stratfor Worldview. Podcast listeners get a special offer. You can go to stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's one word, stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. Thank you.